grade. Praise the Lord. Amen. Well, uh, you know, looking around, I could see who in our congregation has rhythm and who doesn't, you know. <laughs> some of you, man, you got some moves, you know. <laughs> Greg, what are you laughing at? I saw you. <laughs> Praise the Lord. And so it's going to be a great week. If you haven't signed up to help, you can and would like to. Um, you can see Lisa after the after the service um, today. And more than that, if you have grandchildren, children in your neighborhood, children that you know from the community, invite them to come. It's going to be a great time. And I don't know if you saw the post. There's going to be an ice cream truck that shows up one night. We're not telling you which night. So you gotta you gotta come, right? Um, or the kids have to come, right? to get their ice cream. And so, yeah, it's just going to be a great week together. We're so excited. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 4 as we continue our series of messages entitled, A Faith That Works. A Faith That Works from the book of James. And um, we're going to move on. I appreciate um, Pastor Gee leading the service last week and Pastor Fogel, I know, brought a great message. It was a great service and uh, appreciate them. Um, Kim and I were away for the weekend. First time I've ever been away on Father's Day. Um, Kim had a couple of days and took me away, and, and so we went up to the mountains. It was a great time um, for us as well. But um, this morning, James chapter 4, as we continue our series, we have just a couple more messages left here in the book of James. But I want to read for us from verses 11 through 17. Um, this is where we left off a couple weeks ago, verses 11 through 17. And um, James writes this, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them and speaks against the law and judges it. For when you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. For there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, while you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. And this morning, our message is entitled, A Faith That Knows Who's in Charge. A Faith That Knows Who's in Charge. And so, Father, we do ask you to bless your word to us today. Give us ears to hear what you want to speak to us through it, and, and give us hearts sensitive to the ministry of your Holy Spirit as your word comes to us today. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so as we've been going through the book of James, um, we've been asking and answering the question, what does real faith look like? That is, what does it mean to have real faith? That is a faith that saves, we might say, a faith that works. And James is calling us, you see, to back up our words of faith, our claim to have faith in Jesus, the claim to have been born again, to back up those claims with a lifestyle that reflects our faith and the work of Christ within us. As we've said, James has been making the point, I know I bring it up like just about every week, but only a faith that works is a faith that works. That is, our faith has to go 
beyond our words. Only a faith that works is a faith that works. And in our last message from the first part of James chapter 4, we heard the call to make sure that we give God priority in every area of our lives. For you see, people of real faith, they put self and the things of this world aside in favor of making and keeping God first. Do we know that today? Amen? And James continues now by calling us to not only make sure we give God first place, but that we live our lives in such a way that demonstrates that we believe that God is always in charge, that God is in control. After all, by faith, we believe that he and he alone is God. Amen. Right. We believe that he is God. Well, guess what? By definition, that means he's the one who's in charge. He's the one who's in control. If he wasn't, he wouldn't be God. But here's the thing. If we're honest, we have to admit that we all have a tendency to play God, do we not? Because we want to be in control. We want to set the course. We want the people around us to answer to us. We want to answer to nobody but ourselves. And we want to be the judge over all things, deciding what is right and wrong and who is right and wrong. You know, in Genesis 3, 5, we read of how the serpent said to Eve, for God knows that when you eat from it, that is from the, the fruit, when you eat from the tree of, of, of the knowledge of good and evil, when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, the temptation set before Adam and Eve was not just about eating a forbidden fruit, but it was to think that they could become like God. That is, become gods themselves, be able to decide themselves good and evil and right from wrong. The offer was being made to become gods unto themselves, and they took the offer. They gave in to the temptation. And we all know that since that time, mankind has continued on that very same track. We want to be our own gods deciding right from wrong, setting not only the track of our own lives, but that of the world around us. And most of all, living our lives accountable only to ourselves. It's no wonder we see the things that we see in our world, because after all, listen, we are not very moral or good gods, are we? Not at all. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, he somewhat writes about this, beginning at verse 18. He says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people. You see, when we make ourselves gods, we actually become godless. Those who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have, have, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And he goes on to say, therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And Paul goes on as he speaks about what happens when we fail to recognize God as God, when we try to to take God's place or create our own gods. It leads to this spiral deeper and deeper into sin. And you go through the rest of the chapter and you read about that downward spiral. And in the end, it spells absolute disaster. And yet such has been the case throughout history and even into our own present day. Some of us are saying, how could people think that way? How could our world, how could our nation be going in that direction? Well, when you take God out of the picture, when you take him off the throne, and you put ourselves in control, we, it leads to that downward spiral into sin. You see, James' point in the scriptures that we're looking at today is simply this, that Real faith is such that it understands who is really in charge, who is truly God over all things. Real faith that is a faith that works is such that it allows God to be God and thus refuses to try to take his place. For James shows us in verses 11 and 12 that real faith understands that there is only one judge. Do we know that? That ultimately there is one judge. That it is a faith that understands that ultimately everyone is answerable to him and to him alone. Listen, there are people who come to me as pastor and they say, oh, pastor, you know, I'm so sorry I did this, I did that, or I'm, you know, and this, you know, whatever. And, and almost like they're coming to the confession booth, you know. And, you know, confession, we'll read about confessing our sins to one another, right? But listen, sometimes I have to say to people, listen, you know, you're coming apologizing for not coming to church and not reading your Bible and not praying or some things you've done, but ultimately you're not answerable to me. You're answerable to him. James says here, brothers and sisters, I'm reading from the NIV, do not slander one another or more literally stop speaking against one another. We might say that James is returning to his thoughts about the sins of the tongue that he's spoken of a couple of times. But in this case, he's concerned with the way their speech has set themselves up as judges over one another. Again, the NIV says, do not slander one another. The English Standard Version says, do not speak evil against one another. But the thing is this, when you read it in the, in the original language, it's actually a command to stop doing something that they were currently doing. Stop doing this. Just stop it. And the word translator as slander is broader than just one form of speech. It refers to any form of speaking against another person. It can refer to slandering another person that is ruining their reputation by words and accusations. It can also refer to unkind words spoken about another person. It can refer to insinuations made, criticisms, judgments pronounced on them. You know, we do it all the time. I can't believe he would do that. Can you believe that they said that? That they responded in that way? That they acted that way? Did you hear what she said? Always with the insinuation that they were wrong in what they did, they said, how they responded or acted, and that you were the one who was able to determine their wrongness. James says here, 
He says, stop it. For he says, anyone who speaks against a brother or sister, and literally, it says, judges them. And James clearly ties such negative speech about others to pronouncing judgments on them, judgments that you have made. And he goes on to say that when you do that, you speak against the law and you judge it. James says that when we speak this way against one another, we're actually setting ourselves, setting ourselves over and above the law as if we know better. And what law? Well, James has already spoken about in chapter one, the perfect law in chapter two, the royal law. And that is love your neighbor as yourself. You see, for James, and, and I know he's reflecting back to Jesus' words, but this was the law that was above every law, the law that governed every law. As Jesus said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love the Lord your God. And, and then the second one, he says, just like it, it's, 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 it's equal to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the ultimate law given by God, the law that was to rule over, over our lives, the royal law. And so for James, he's telling us, listen, to speak against and thus judge the people around us is acting as if we know better. And we can make all the excuses for what we think or what we say. Oh, we're just being like righteous. We're just pointing it out, you know, and so forth. But in the end, we're breaking the royal law because we're acting as if we know what is best. And in verse 12, he, James says this, but listen, there is only one lawgiver and judge. For you see, here's the real crux of the matter. By speaking against those around us, making judgments about them, we are attempting to take God's place within their life and to usurp his authority. For ultimately, God is the giver of the law, and thus he is the only one who has the authority to act as judge. Now, I know we have a judge sitting right here in our midst, Judge John D'Amico, but um, I I hope I get this right, you know, judge. But as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about it this way, that, that a U.S. judge, even if they're at the, they're the, at the highest court in our land, that U.S. judge has no right to go to a foreign country and enact judgments in that country based on our laws. Like our judges, they can't just show up in China or Nicaragua or Spain or wherever it might be and pronounce judgments on the people there based on our laws. He or she has no authority, and thus they have no basis for pronouncing judgments on another country's citizens in that land. In the same way, James is saying, listen, we have no right to judge one another. We're not the ones who set up the law. God is. And we are not ultimately accountable to one another, but to God. And thus, he is the only one who has the right to act as judge over our lives. Jesus said this in Luke 6, 37. He said, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. In Matthew 7, he says this, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so, because Jesus then goes on to talk about, oh, you want to remove the plank from, excuse me, you want to remove the speck from your neighbor's eye? First get the plank out of your own eye, you know? And Paul, writing to the Romans about 
you know, they were having controversies. Oh, he's eating this meat and she's not eating it, or they're drinking that and not drinking this, and da da da. He says, You then, why do you judge your brother and sister, or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Or as James wrote, only God is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to to judge your neighbor? That is, who gave you the right to set yourself up as judge over their life and determine what's right and wrong in their life? For when you do, and when you do, you have taken God's place. You have tried to usurp God's authority, and you've, you, 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 you have worked to make yourself God, to become God in your own eyes. And let me just say that this has been a big problem in churches like our Pentecostal churches that have come out of the holiness movement. Not that there was something wrong, anything wrong with saying, listen, we want to be holy before God. We want to live right before God. But unfortunately, in many of our churches, there became this pointing of fingers. Did you see what he did? Did you see what she did? And so forth. And, and, and this heaviness. I can tell you, I had a mom who came to the Lord. You know, she was brought up Jewish, and she came to the Lord um, through, through my Greek grandmother's church, a Pentecostal church, and they were very much involved in holiness. And suddenly, suddenly, because she put on some makeup or she cut her hair, the fingers were pointing. And you know what it did? It messed up her relationship with God, Honestly. We won't go too far into that. Now, listen, James' words are not meant to stop the church from calling outright sin, sin. There's some things the Bible says that's just sin. But they are meant to, as one person wrote, to rule out the harsh, unkind, critical spirit that continually finds fault with others. And he does so by reminding the believers, those who profess faith in God and Christ, that there is only one judge And thus only God has a right to pass judgment upon those around us. And to understand that, to believe that will result in us stopping our negative and hurtful talk against one another. And so we understand as people of faith that there's only one judge and we will all stand before him. We will all be accountable for our lives before him. But secondly, he goes on, verses 13 to 16, to remind us that real faith understands there is only one who determines the future. Do we know that this morning? Come on, church, do we know that? There's only one who determines the future. But in these verses, we read of of another way that we often attempt to usurp God's authority. And James describes a scenario that comes out of the business world. Now, listen, he could have chosen any number of situations wherein we do the very same thing. But here he describes how plans are made in detail. They're laid out. They're spoken about without any thought of the tenuous nature of life or the will of God. Notice there's no allowance for unforeseen circumstances. Those involved, they speak as if the future is certain. They say, oh, today, tomorrow, we're going to go here and there, and we're going to spend a year there and so forth. They talk as if the future is in their hands. They not only talk about the next day, but they, they even talk about what will take place next year. And what they fail to take into account is the tenuous nature of life, one natural disaster, one pandemic or plague, one personal illness and so forth can easily stop us in our tracks and bring all of our plans to a screeching halt. And isn't this exactly what we learned this past year? 
I mean, how many people had plans that came totally unraveled by a virus that brought the whole economy, that brought nations, the whole world, no less our lives, to a screeching halt? I was thinking, you've, you've, you've read, and you know, we need to pray for, for the people affected by the collapse of the building there in Miami. What a terrible thing. I thought, like, 1 o'clock in the morning, these people went to bed thinking about what they're going to do tomorrow morning. And the building collapses? James says, what is your life? You are a mist. Is you're here today, gone tomorrow. And James seems to be echoing the words of Ecclesiastes, which says this. I have seen all the things done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. It's all vanity. That word in Ecclesiastes, meaningless or vanity. One, one person defined it, it, it as this. It's like that soap bubble that appears for a moment and then suddenly pops. Or the steam that appears from the teapot, but just as quickly dissipates and disappears. James says, such is the case with each of our lives. We are but a mist. We are here for a moment, then suddenly, and we don't know when, suddenly we're gone. See, Proverbs 27.1 says this, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Psalm 39 Psalmist wrote these words in verses 4 through 6. And I, think it's a, it's, I think it's a great prayer for us. Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know or let me understand how fleeting my life is. For you have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. God, help me to understand the brevity of my life. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus told the story of the rich man. I referred to it just a couple weeks ago, but the rich man who, who experienced such, such an incredible and abundant harvest that... The, you know, he didn't know what to do with it all. And he thought, oh, this is my opportunity to sit back and eat, drink, and be merry, to enter into retirement mode. But Jesus said that, that God said to him that night, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? You see, the man thought, oh, I have all this time. I have a whole lifetime before me to enjoy all this prosperity. What he didn't take into account was a tenuous nature of life that at any moment his life could come to an end. You see, the people to whom James was writing, they failed to take into consideration the fact that life in general is very uncertain. And in fact, each one of our lives is basically here today and gone tomorrow. Thus, we don't know what will happen tomorrow, no less next year. And I think any of us, as we begin to advance in years, we realize how fast and fleeting the years go by, do we not? We really do. My sister called me the other day, Wednesday. She said, I just completed my 37th year of teaching. I'm like, how could that be? Like, you're only like a couple years younger than me. 37 years of teaching? Doesn't make any sense. I thought you were going to say like 13th year, you know? But that's the way life goes. But you see, the other thing is, not only did they not take into account the tenuous nature of life, but they had no consideration of God's will or divine providence. 
But these people that James describes seem to have forgotten that when it comes to our lives and our world and all of time, that ultimately God is the one who's in control. He's the one who knows and controls the times and seasons of our lives and of our world. In Job 38, God says this, Can you bring forth the constellation in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? That bear, you know, is one of the constellations. Can you bring it out? Do you know the laws of heaven? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Daniel 2.21, Daniel says he changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. James says that people of faith realize that ultimately God is in control of all things and that his divine providence supersedes all of our plans. And thus we have have to... Take all of our plans, all of our thoughts for the future. This is what I'm going to do. This is where I'm going to go. This is, this, this is my, my one-year plan, my five-year plan, my ten-year plan. We take it all realizing that God is God and he alone is God, and we submit them all into his hands. For we say, as James says, if it is the Lord's will. If it is the Lord's will. Now listen, it's not about the words, you know, we just tack on to our Oh, I'm going to, I'll see you next week, God willing. Oh, I'm going to go to the supermarket today, God willing. You know, I'm going to go play tennis today, God willing, you know. It's not about the words. It's about understanding that we're not in control of our future destinies. We are not in control of what happens in our world. We are not in control of time. See, I've been reading a number of books this past year that mostly took place during what we would call the Industrial Revolution and leading into the 20th century. And you know what happened to, to I don't know, what happened to man with all the, the birth of technology and science is we began to think that we could create the kind of world that we wanted to be. And that somehow we were in control. That we could bring utopia to this earth. But listen, we're not in control. Oh, there's things we can do and things we can't do. But the one who's ultimately in control of all things is God. And so we make our plans, we do what we need to do, and then we say, if it is the Lord's will. And one person wrote that phrase is a true expression of Christian submission to divine providence. For by faith, we understand that all of life is in God's hands. He can open and shut doors as he wills. He, he's the one who can direct the course of our lives. Thus, all of life is seen as conditional upon his will. And thus, with hearts filled with faith, we submit all of our plans into his hands. And James says in verse 16 that to not do so, to leave God out of the equation, it's arrogant. It's arrogant, for it displaces God from his rightful place over our lives. He actually accuses the people of leaving God out and then bragging about it. They had taken on this arrogant sense of self-sufficiency. They begin to, had begun to live as if they were in control, for they had lost sight of the fact that ultimately God is the one who's in control of, of life, of our world, of all of time. Listen, those of you who know me, you know that I'm a planner. Right? Do you know that? Right? I know you. Some of you, you know. The first time Kim and I took our kids to Disney, Jonathan was like ten, and the others were like I don't know, eight and six, whatever, something like that. Listen, I worked for months on our itinerary. I asked them, okay, here, here's the theme parks. I want you to star the ones that are most important for you to get to. 
right? And, and, and these are the ones that have fast pass. And we made the reservation. I mean, we were going like the end of April. And, it, and, and by the middle of January, I had the whole thing laid out. In fact, it all worked so well, honestly, that I had friends who borrowed my itinerary the next time they went. Because I don't want to go down there and spend all this money and waste all this time, you know? But God forbid I or you should make plans without giving any thought to the fact that ultimately God and only God is in control of our future. I mean, listen, it, it could have been like, that could have been the year of the pandemic and our plans just would have been canceled. You know? One, one illness in our home, that would have been the end. But lots of unforeseen things happen in our lives as we've well learned this past year. But I want to tell you this morning, nothing is a surprise to God. Amen? Nothing is a surprise. And thus, we must always take our plans and submit them to God and his will for our lives, his will for our world, ultimately his will for his kingdom. And as people of faith, we understand that ultimately God is in control of the seasons of our lives. And we don't try to displace him. He's the one who's in charge. And so verse 17, James ends with this. He says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. This verse applies to what we've spoken about today. It may even go back, some say, all the way to the beginning of chapter 1. James has, has told us, listen, keep a tight rein on your tongue and make sure you take care of those in need. Be careful not to make distinctions among people and to show favoritism. Put your faith into action. But at this juncture, can you come, thank you. At this juncture, James would be saying to us this. To usurp God's authority and try to take his place by putting yourself in God's place. It's not just wrong. It's not just unhealthy. It's a sin. It's a sin. He says, you know what you ought to do. Give God his place in your life. Trust God with your life. Allow God to be God over every area of your life. That's how faith works. And so let me ask you this morning, as James would ask us, who is in control of your life? That is, who is sitting on the throne of your life? Is it God or is it you? Is it God or is it you? And you might mouth words of faith and say it's God. But you see, the way in which you live, from the way you speak about the people around you to the way in which you make your plans, and we could say a whole host of other things, will reveal who is truly God over your life. And the call today is to allow God to be God over our lives. And thus, we submit ourselves, all that we are, all that we have, all that we dream of, we submit it all to him. And so, church, let's allow God to be God. Can you say amen? Let's allow God to be God. Let's not try to put ourselves on the throne. Let's not allow anyone else or anything else to be put on the throne. For ultimately, he's the one who's in charge. He's the ultimate judge. We are all accountable to him. And he's the one who holds our lives, our world in his hands. Don't you love that old song? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Let's allow God to be God. If you're here today, 
And maybe you've never given your life to God through faith in his son, Jesus. Listen, until you take that step, all I can say is, you know it, you've been trying to live as God over your own life. But today, the invitation comes. The invitation comes for you to put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And all that he's done for you through his death, his, his life, his death, his resurrection. And allow God to take his place in your life. Because you know, you have not been a very good God. Your life is headed in the wrong direction. Your life is maybe spiraling out of control. But if you'll give your life to God through faith in Jesus, I can assure you of this. He is a very good, good God, even a good, good father. That's the kind of God he is. And he will take care of you. And yes, things may change and life may happen very fast and take all different twists and turns. But he will be with you every step of the way. He will help you. He will comfort you. There'll be times when he'll step in. He'll deliver you. He'll, he'll see you through. He'll heal you. He'll minister to you in so many different ways. The Bible says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Oh, won't you let God be God over your life today? Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? I'll ask the worship team to come. With every head bowed, every eye closed here in the sanctuary for those of you who are online. Won't you just pray a prayer this morning, even as I lead us in prayer, just saying, God, God, will you forgive me for the times when I've given into the temptation to make myself God? Lord, today I open up my heart, I open up my life to you. For I know that ultimately I and everyone around me will have to give account before you and you alone. And Lord, that you're the one. You're the one who sits on the throne of heaven, but, but I also today I open up my heart that you might sit on the throne of my heart. And Lord, I know that, that you're the one who holds my world and my life in your hands. For you're in control of all things. And today I ask you to forgive me for when I've tried to take control. And I take all of my life, all of my plans, all of my hopes and dreams, I put them into your hands, trusting you in faith, knowing that you are a good God. A good God. Who's not out to harm me. But is out to help me. And lead me, lead me into eternal life in your kingdom. God, I pray for someone out there today, maybe someone in this sanctuary, someone online who's not yet taken that step of faith. But today they're saying, God, will you come into my life? Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you give me new life? As I put my faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. God, will you touch them? Let your Holy Spirit Minister to them and fill them. Today, together as one people, we declare that you are God and you are God alone. Come on, church, right now, would you stand together? Just, just stand together, lift your hands and just declare it to him. Just say, God, you are God and you are God alone. 
You are God, and you are God alone. You are the one who's over all things. You are the one who's in charge of all things. You are the one in whom I can put my trust, and it's you are the one that I worship. I refuse to worship the things of this world. I refuse to worship the things that I can create with my own hands. I refuse to worship myself, but I will worship you for you are God and you are God alone. And so I exalt you this morning. I honor you today and I lay my life before you today. We bless you. We bless you this morning in Jesus name. In Jesus name. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah.